0: Hello from Austin and welcome to the end of the year holiday party for the National Security Law Podcast, also known as episode 212. We're brought to you once in a blue moon by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas, theoretically on a weekly basis, but you know. It's December 17th, 2021. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm
1: Steve Vlodek. I think it's been 39 days since our last episode. Yeah, you know, the uh, the the periodicity is. I think it's increasing. It's increasing. <laughs> there's there's some entropy going on here. Um, but, it, but 212, 212 I, I, I the area it gets me all 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 warm and fuzzy about area that's codes. Right.
0: That's right. It's, it's a very a very appropriate area code for. I for grew up. People. I grew up in two one two. That's right. The two one two. That Steve's homecoming.
1: It's a homecoming party as well as a holiday party. So you know that apparently I, I had always thought, or at least I, I had thought I had always known that, like when they first handed out area codes in like the 1950s or 60s or whatever, that they tried to sort of make it based on like how little distance your finger had to go on a rotary dial. Mm. So then, like New York got two one two because that was actually a very short distance on a rotary yeah. dial, right? Like um, L A was two one three, Chicago was three one two. And apparently that's, it's not about the rotary dial, it's about the mechanical switches. Interesting, Um,
0: but is it the same concept and efficiency? Same rough concept,
1: that like like the idea was like the lower lower number of the digits, the less work that the equipment had to do. So the the variation
0: in the, uh, the code for any given community is a reflection of a snapshot in time, what somebody thought of the importance, relatively speaking, or at least the population.
1: At least, at least when the, the initial area code system. Now, of course, we're so well past that. You know, we're yeah, we're yeah. well past the all area codes starting with a, having a zero or a one as the middle digit. Yeah, um, yeah. we're well past. You know, we're into overlays. We're like, you know, they're now like eleven area codes just for New York. But but at least at the beginning. You know, it had a, there was like the interstate highway system, right? There right. was a method to the numbering madness. Uh,
0: I wonder on, on this uh, theme, how, how long until episode, our Austin episode, 512? Uh, well, at, at, our, at our recent pace, <laughs> we will both be good and dead. Yes, this is true. We'll, we'll, there's a chance we'll pick up the pace in the spring. I, you know, Speaking for myself, I mean, I had a really heavy teaching load. The classes are now over. The grading is not over. Um, but I have high hopes for 2022 being a little more appealing, at least in the spring, in terms of availability. Uh, you'll probably flip into an even busier mode, but I don't know. Maybe your cases are going to lighten up.
1: Uh, uh, I, I, you know, I'm doing my best to lose all of them, so that, that's, that's helping.
0: <laughs> that's one way to put it into it. Uh, um, well, boy, one, we, one, of the,
1: one of them went away since last we spoke.
0: We don't lack for topics. Um, I'm not even sure we should try to do a run of show because we have such a long list. run of maybe. show would
1: be the show. So, folks, our, our
0: concept of operations uh, is that this is indeed our, our casual holiday party. And therefore, uh, we're all just in a little kind of cocktail party set up with you, just chatting about stuff, uh, which is an indirect way of saying it, I think we're even less prepared than normal, which is really saying something. I don't know. I actually made an outline for this episode. I thank God. <laughs> That's going to help. Um, and in keeping with some of the, the combo
1: on Twitter, when we get to frivolity...
0: Well, we've got some we've got some Mo
1: Willems content, which I'm we very do. excited about. We do, including the the enormous plot hole in Nuffle Bunny Free. Ouch. Oh my gosh. Okay. Speaking of Twitter, have you seen that like Karen has apparently become like a TikTok star? Uh, I have seen a few of these. So
0: a couple just before we get into it. So ever since uh the transition at Twitter, there's been some functionality changes. One thing that's driving me nuts is they're really pushing hard to nudge me off of having latest tweets show up first and forcing me to go with their curated feed.
1: No, um, always, I always re- reset it back to the latest. I know, but
0: now you have to do it way more often. And it's it, it's also slower to load new ones. They keep you on the uh, starter screen much longer now. But I think because of the uh, the curated feed, they keep flipping me back to you. I did get to enjoy some of Karen's TikToks, which are hilarious.
1: Um, she's got a future. Well the other that thing I was gonna say is I mean like TikTok so just they, they um I, I made a cameo on one of them, but they posted their new one, Bobby, at like seven o'clock last night central time. Mm-hmm. It's twelve fifteen PM Central Time as we're sitting here recording on Friday, and it already has six hundred and twenty thousand views on TikTok. Okay, that's
0: nuts. That's incredible. Right? Great... Like what the heck is that? All right, you gotta monetize this, Steve. I don't I know how that asked. works. I, I, gather, I gather that can be a thing. Somehow there must be some way.
1: I mean, just like we've monetized this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Shoot. It's a good thing, actually, it's a good thing we haven't monetized this podcast because no. if we had monetized it, we presumably would have long since been in deep violation of our obligations to produce regular content.
0: I know. We've already sort of violated them the moral promise. I mean, if I we do share feel- duty. Yeah, like scanning latest episodes. Where are those guys? What are they doing? Uh, I'm imagining someone thinks that. I don't know that anyone thinks that. Um, all right. Well, let's get on with it. We've got stuff. Uh, we got stuff. You want to begin with uh, things relating to January 6th and uh, some of the uh, some of the various threads of that story that are unfolding in the courts or in Congress?
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, you know, it's I don't I don't know what to do with January 6th, right? Because I feel like. You know, are there really folks out there whose minds are not made up?
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, but it's, it's um, but but the
0: aftermath in watching the, the various institutions of authority interact with each other to figure out the investigative boundaries and all the rest yes. is, is a perennial that there's an so, old chestnut roasting on an open fire for us.
1: Fair enough. So so there have been two significant developments on the judicial side of the January 6th committee's work. Um the first has been the uh, filing of contempt of Congress, of criminal contempt of Congress charges against Steve Bannon, um, which, of course, you know, generate a lot of headlines, um, which, Bobby, I, I don't think raises any hard legal questions about the contempt statute. No, um, it's very straightforward that they can do this. It's now in DOJ's hands to decide. Right. Don't, the only question is whether courts are going to somehow recognize a novel privilege or immunity that somehow protected Bannon. And and I think the tricky part here is that, you know, he has to show that any such privilege or immunity categorically exempted him from compliance with the testimonial subpoena and the documentary subpoena. 100%. He can't simply say, well, I might have been asked this
0: question or that question, and that might have raised a genuine merits objection about some privilege or another. Um, You can't say like, well, given that possibility, I think I just won't show
1: Right. That's uh, right.
0: Do you think there's any doubt that uh, the criminal division at DOJ will init- will take up this reference and and no they have they they, they indicted him oh okay okay right sorry I missed we have, that. A, we have a trial date oh wait, well, okay I missed all that was someone else though just referred who did Meadows work?
1: so the 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 oh, fight okay, no thank you right so so Bannon's the easy case because Bannon never had a job in the in the White House right and so, right. Yeah, so his there's claim there's is none the easy. his claim of farther. the Right, so so there's this harder with Meadows. There's this harder question about the testimony the, the putative, the never recognized by a court, but sometimes recognized by OLC, absolute testimonial immunity of senior White House advisors. Right, right, especially the of the non uh, confirmed by the Senate variety that Correct. are truly in that advisory capacity. Correct. Right, so that also, I mean, that's where some the of the stuff about like the the thirty six point PowerPoint deck um, <laughs> right, came out.
0: That was bonkers. Uh, so the way this will unfold is, criminal division or the leadership at DOJ—they've got to decide what they're going to do with this. With Meadows, with Meadows, go get an indictment from a grand jury, and then eventually, uh, a, presumably, a motion to dismiss the indictment on grounds of absolute testimonial executive privilege, and, and then it'll start bubbling its way up through the courts. Timeline-wise, uh, you know, so if you're Meadows, if you're any of these people, part of the game here is to run out the clock until yep. possible different administration and or different grantor of additional pardons. Um, so do you think there's any doubt that this could get through the motion to dismiss the indictment stage and whatever appeals follow from that for Meadows during this current presidential term?
1: Oh during this presidential term, I think there's no question it'll go. I think the trickier part is, you know, what happens if the case is still pending. Congress turns over, and the new Republican majority in Congress withdraws the reference. I don't think that matters. Like I think once DOJ chooses to indict, hmm. right? Yeah, the indictment cannot be defeated by a withdrawal of the reference. Like I, I think, like you know, the Congress is handing control of the case over to the Justice Department. Right. They they can't. It's
0: a little bit like saying, like, well, I've decided after the indictment as the victim of a. Of a- regular crime, I've decided not to press charges like, well, the state's interest in has been fully engaged at this stage.
1: So I I think I actually think both Meadows and Bannon will produce relevant decisions before there's any chance that they could possibly be mooted. I mean, I think I think that's that's where we are. Um, The the trickier case on that front is the other big January 6 judicial development, which is the ongoing fight between former President Trump and the January sixth committee over his over the sort of the request from the committee to hand over various um, of his internal documents, mm-hmm. um, and just to remind folks what happened. So, um, pr- the National Archives and Record Administration agreed to comply with the request from the committee under the Presidential Records Act. President Biden formally determined that he was not going to assert executive privilege with respect. To the surrendering of those materials. And so Trump is suing, trying to argue that even though the current president has chosen not to invoke executive privilege, as a former president, he's still entitled to invoke executive privilege to prevent the turning over of these materials.
0: Has there ever been any decision of a court to recognize such a post hoc uh, retroactive control over the office of the presidency's Privilege positions.
1: There's never been a Supreme Court decision. I mean, the, the only Supreme Court decision that's anywhere in the ballpark, of course, is Nixon versus administrator of the GSA um, from, I think, what, 77 or 78. Um, but, you know, that was a different context. That was a different issue. I mean, I just you know, I have to think, Bobby, that if you believe in the unitary executive— Right. There's unitary only, means only
0: one unitary. president.
1: And we've talked about this in the context of presidential transitions, right? How even a president-elect does not wield executive power, you know, on January 19th. Like there's still you know, he's not the commander-in-chief. He doesn't have the nuclear codes. Like that's constitutionally relevant. No, um, I think you're
0: you're you're both right and it's savvy to point out the unitariness, the unitary theory, the textualism and originalism. That feeds into this conception of the singularity of the office does loom large here, and to and to make the arguments that the other side needs to make uh, necessarily will pull the opposition into arguing for consequentialist interpretations that you know, have to do with well, this creates bad incentives because, of course, as here, you mm-hmm. can have presidents of different parties. Well, this is a this is a motive argument you don't normally
1: find conservatives pushing for. So, entered the DC circuit. So, on December 9th, um, a week ago yesterday, um, a unanimous three-judge panel of the DC circuit handed down a 68-page opinion rejecting Trump's claims. Mm-hmm. Um it's a it's a very thorough opinion by Judge Millette. Um I think she does both a very good job of summarizing legal issues, but Bobby also it's not hyper technical. She talks about the stakes, like she talks about, you know, she situates this Fight in the context of the the January sixth insurrection and and the ongoing debate over you know sort of finding out exactly what happened. Um, but the most important thing that the court appeals did, other than ruling against Trump, was um, they had Bobby, as you know, administratively blocked the turning over of the documents. Right, the deadline had a, the deadline had come and gone, but the D.C. Circuit had issued a so-called administrative injunction, right, um, to preserve. Trump's rights long enough to decide if he was going to win on the merits. Um, What the Court of Appeal said at the end of its decision is that Trump has 14 days to seek emergency review from the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. Um, And if he doesn't do that, the injunction will dissolve, the documents will be handed over. Um, What that means is that former President Trump has to file an emergency application in the Supreme Court by the 23rd. and then that the filing of that application will keep the injunction in place until and unless the Supreme Court acts on the application. So little and doubt that he'll do exactly that, right? No, no, of course he will. I mean he'll he'll but 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 the, the sort of the two things that are worth stressing is it was, in my view, incredibly clever. Of the DC circuit to do that in two respects. One, they don't look like they're they're being prejudicial to him. Right. He, so they're still
0: they preserving don't, his interest, yeah.
1: Right? So that so that the so he can't just run to the Supreme Court and say, You've got to protect me. Right. But Bobby, by making it about 14 days until he files in the Supreme Court, they cut out his ability to run out the clock by seeking on Bonk. Um,
0: um, oh, interesting. They're forcing him to go up further rather than to what I was talking about earlier, try to create a multi-year litigation pathway that gives them a chance to avoid this issue at the ballot box.
1: Right. And so even if, right, even if the Supreme Court wants to take this case, and my own suspicion is they don't want this with a, they don't want to touch this with a 10-foot pole. Um, even if the Supreme Court wants this case, now it's in, a, it's in a time frame, Bobby, where they'd probably be in a position to, to take it up and decide it this term so that a decision would be out by the end of June. Um, can, is there a way for him to wiggle around this? Can, can he pursue en banc despite this, and just sort of? He can, but it doesn't help. It doesn't. It doesn't affect the injunction. Um, he has right. If he doesn't seek, uh, if he, if he doesn't seek emergency relief from the Supreme Court by December twenty third, the injunction dissolves, and Nara is going to turn over the documents.
0: But is there a way for the? circuit as an institution when the en banc petition is filed- To further
1: extend the injunction. To further,
0: to supersede what the panel's- There absolutely is. It won't.
1: Um, I mean, this was a panel that this panel was, although it wasn't a good panel for Trump, it was also, I think, a panel that was fairly well representative of what the majority of the full en banc DC circuit would say. And- that's even more true on the procedural question. So, you know, I think there's no doubt that Trump will now file on the 23rd with the Supreme Court. I don't think the Supreme Court will act overnight. It won't be that kind of an emergency. Right. But I do think that as early as early January, Bobby, I, I think we're going to get a, I think the Supreme Court will reject his application. I mean, I think the I think law that, is pretty clear here.
0: No, I agree. I think the he's this whole thing is an uphill battle. The The one part of it that made sense from his perspective, aside from the politics, is is the run out the clock strategy. And, and, and that's why I think what the DC yeah. Circuit
1: has done is so clever, right? Because that's very interesting. Right? The the D, so a lot of folks reacted negatively in mid-November when the DC Circuit issued an administrative injunction. They were like, oh, Trump's gonna be able to succeed again. I actually think this was very, very clever on the Court of Appeals part, because by looking like they were, you know, being sensitive to the unique considerations of the case then. They've now, they, and by deciding the case, Bobby, 10 days after, you know, a three hour oral argument. Yeah. Right? yeah. like
0: they're, they're clearly cognizant. You know, it's funny. It really stands out in contrast to most of the yes. calendar sensitive things that we talk about on the show, which for yes. those of y'all who have been longtime listeners, first, thank you. Second, um, I'm not sure why you do it, but we love you for it. <laughs> Third, um, one of the recurring sort of uh, motifs of the show or one of the underlying lessons I think anybody who really listens over time would take away is, you know, the, the nature of the formal legal system is so protracted that insofar as the passage of time could supersede the legal outcome, there are ways for a sufficiently thoughtful uh, party to a case to make things protracted and get get outcomes that aren't the formal legal outcomes, but are the practical outcomes that matter. And we see the courts. Very rarely, very rarely uh, responding and sort of, I don't know, uh, circumventing those types of strategies. This looks like it might be one of those rare moments where the court actually is cognizant of it and decides to act in a way that's perfectly legitimate and does prevent circumvention of, of, in effect, their
1: jurisdiction. I, I agree with every single word of that. And I think, you know, this, to me, is is really, really clever on the D.C. Circuit's part, and all I wish that would happen is that Congress would codify some of this. Um, <laughs> well, because, it so again, but the, is it, it's not the rule. It's the exception. We're seeing the exception. Well, and it's also, and it's just, it really is a function of whichever judges are assigned to the case, and I'd prefer, you know, I would really, and we'll talk about this a bit when we get to the vaccine mandates. I think there are, whatever you think of the merits of these cases, there ought to be common cause that's, that... You know, making it impossible for the adverse party to simply run out the clock is something that we really ought to have institutional interest in championing. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree with that. Um, I think that's a that's a nonpartisan
0: issue that cuts both ways. It's a it's a rule of law. Make sure that the legal implementation institutions are able to play their interpretive role. Um, It's not about. It's it's definitely not about. Far from being about judicial activism, it. If anything, it's. Rather uh, the opposite I mean there there's both a f- for those who are concerned about judicial activism you tend to worry about what's the ceiling on what the courts do but you should worry about as a rule of law person you should worry about the floor too all right um Scotus let's let's move up a notch to the, yeah, the Supreme
1: Court granted a war powers case Wow so tell us about Torres what's going on in Torres um, so I've I've a, I'm, I've been following Torres for about four or five years now. I'm just surprised that the Supreme Court <laughs> took it.
0: <laughs> long time, um,
1: Steve, you're a longtime listener, time listener first time cert cert Um So Torres is this really fascinating case. Um, it's you know it's it's been brought by a team of lawyers led by Andrew Tut um, and Arlen Porter. And it's about this federal statute, Bobby—the Uniform Services Employment and Reemployment Rights Act of 1994, or USERRA, um, wow. as it is known to the world. Um, USERRA is basically a sort of employment anti-discrimination law for current and former service members. Okay. Um, and the basic idea is that USERRA creates federal rights and federal remedies for current and former service members. Who claim that existing employment policies or employers are punishing them because of military service? So you know they're pushed down the promotion track, or they're locked in a different pay structure, or any kind of adverse employment action that is based upon their military service. Basically, trying to say like you fear you should fear no employment ramifications for going on an active duty tour, right? For 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 doing your weekend up, like for whatever your military obligations are. So that's USERA. Um, And, you know, in most contexts, USERA is not complicated. But um, what if the employer at issue is a state? Um, So USERA creates a a private cause of action, Bobby, in state court only um, against whoever the employer is for damages. And this runs into something that you and I both teach in con law and that I teach in federal courts, which is state sovereign immunity. So okay. um, uh, the, under the Supreme Court's current jurisprudence, which if we had four hours, I would walk carefully through why it's completely made up and indefensible, um, but that's another time. <laughs> um, under the Supreme Court's current jurisprudence, um, states have broad sovereign immunity from damages suits under federal law. Okay. Um, and that, that was most forcefully articulated in a 1990, oh gosh, five decision, five, six, six, 1996 decision, uh, Seminole Tribe of Florida versus Florida. Um, I'm dating, is this 95, or 96? Seminole. Oh, you know, it's the end of the semester where I can't remember what year Seminole Tribe was decided. Um, anyway, whatever the hell it was decided. It's 1996. Okay. Um, so under Seminole Tribe, Congress generally lacks the power to subject a non-consenting state to a damages suit. Right. Um, the, the, the historical exception is Congress's powers under the Reconstruction Amendments. So under a 1976 decision called Fitzpatrick versus Bitzer, Congress can use its Reconstruction reinf- re- Amendment powers to subject a non-consenting state to suit, but USERA is not a statute enacted under any There's, of those. Right, yeah. um, instead, USERA is a war power statute. It's a statute Congress enacted under its Article One, Section 8 war powers. And so the question in Torres is whether there ought to be an exception to the general structural limit on Congress's power to subject non-consenting states to suit under its Article I powers for the war powers. So it it seems clearly USERA is a
0: raise and support the armed forces power exercise. Like very straightforward, because part of being able to have those personnel available for these purposes would be protecting them from...
1: Uh, Disincentives to
0: to participate. Uh, so, how do you prognosticate this one
1: coming down? Well, so 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 you know under U.S.A.R. itself, the case went through the Texas state courts. It was an intermediate Texas appeals court that rejected the plaintiff's arguments. The Texas Supreme Court denied you know discretionary review. The petitioners filed for cert. Bobby, the Supreme Court asked the S.G. to weigh in, and the federal government. To my surprise, right? I mean, I, I'm not surprised the SG opposed cert. That's what the SG does. But the SG actually defended the Court of Appeals' decision. Really? Because um, sometimes you get SG sometimes you get so-called CVSG briefs, calls for the views of the assistant general, yeah. where they yeah. say, Well, we don't really think the lower court was right, but don't worry, Supreme Court, you don't need to take this case. Like you get those a lot. Yeah, no, but this right? is the merits defense. Right. This one they defend on the merits. Um, and they recommended a deny, and the court granted anyway. And I think that's, you know, yeah, it's a pretty, that's a pretty powerful sign that at least four justices think that the court, the Texas Intermediate Court of Appeals, was wrong. Now, just one last sort of technical nerdy point. You know this, but a lot of our listeners won't. In 2006, actually, the very, 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 very last decision Justice O'Connor participated in before she retired, the Supreme Court recognized one exception to the sort of general no Article One abrogation of immunity principle. And that was for bankruptcy cases um, in a case called Central Virginia Community College versus Katz. So it's not like this would be the first time. What was the, right, be the rationale there? What was it that justified that abrogation? So the the Justice Breyer's opinion in Katz, um, Breyer or Stevens? Actually, it must have been Stevens. Justice Stevens' opinion in Katz um, sort of talks about the Sort historical function of the bankruptcy power, how the bankruptcy system wouldn't work if states were, you know, immune from taking any haircuts, if states were the absolute secured creditor, preferred creditors in every single bankruptcy, like that would distort the bankruptcy system. Um, so, you know, the, the sort of, the plaintiffs and now the petitioner's arguments in Torres versus Texas Department of Public Safety are predicated on many of the same arguments yeah. about the war powers also, the federalism piece of it that like it wasn't supposed to be the state's job to regulate the federal military. Um, so they've got some good arguments. I just, you know, given the posture and given the SG's position, the the, the grant kind of surprised me. Yeah, that's pretty wild. Well, OK, that's a that's an unexpected one to watch, but it's not the only one to watch. Um, well, that's the only one to watch on that front um, because they denied Begani. Right. So the our pending petition or our, our formerly pending petition. <laughs> once once in future? No, just once. Just once. Um, so uh the case about um whether it's constitutional, the court martial retired service members for post-retirement offenses. Um they denied cert without comment. Um, that doesn't end the story, right? We're still waiting for the DC circuit to rule in Larrabee. Um but it does suggest that there may not be that much interest on the court in this issue unless there is a split. Which yeah. means, you know, if the DC circuit affirms in Larrabee and we win, this case goes up. Um, but if we lose in Larrabee, perhaps we're gonna have a hard time convincing this yeah, court. That might be to the end of it. Too. That might be the end of it. Interesting. Um let's see. I you know, there was the big SB8 ruling. Um it's not really a national, uh, There, it's more a sort of Fed courts nerdistry episode than a national security nerdistry thinking episode. I about this
0: earlier now, and I, as I told you, I haven't had the chance to do the close read, so I don't really have any you know, clear views on it yet, but I do think that the general question of whether the states as an abstract proposition may embrace this sort of enforcement mechanism in a way that will it, it's not that it precludes judicial review altogether because eventually someone brings a case and then that then the issue can be put and adjudicated. Uh, we're talking here, of course, for those who don't follow the shorthand, SB-8 is the, the Texas uh, abortion-related bill that includes this mechanism for private enforcement, what's sometimes called the bounty hunter uh, provision, where basically disinterested parties who get wind of something or think they've gotten wind of something can go after anybody who they think was in some way, fashion, uh, involved in helping someone else or themselves getting involved in an in abortion that contravenes the underlying sort of merits provisions of the statute. And of course, that mechanism can be turned on uh, any right or asserted right. It can be turned on speech. It can be turned on guns. It can be turned on you name it. California is
1: talking about, you know, Gavin Newsom is talking about introducing legislation in the California legislature to, to apply this to government. I'm not
0: positive. I feel like I saw something about maybe Florida and DeSantis proposing something kind of similar on some other dimension. So look, if this, if this mechanism becomes a standard feature of our law, wow, we're going to see a lot of disinterested parties, uh, Imposing, deterring, chilling costs on a whole spectrum of both right-leaning and left-leaning and everywhere-leaning rights activity or asserted rights activity, and yeah, we'll see. That it, it sounds like a mess.
1: Um, so I, I I I agree with that. I will just say, you know, for folks who would like to hear more, um, there's a pretty good episode of the Strict Scrutiny podcast where I participated from behind a <laughs> uh, one of those airport lactation pods for you for 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 nursing women, um, right? But um, the we did an episode the day the decision oh, came cool. out, so that has a much more in depth. I, I will just say, I think it is. You know, I mean, abortion is a third rail. Like, I'm you no, know, the obviously it gets everyone's dander up. I think the procedural side of the decision raises a lot of the concerns, Bobby, you just alluded to, whatever you think right. of the substance.
0: Fill in the blank with any possible constitutional right claim. Decide what you think the most clearly established
1: and important one is and insert here. Um, well, and the- I, I would go one step further, which is I am deeply worried about a world in which, you know, the scope of federal constitutional rights is very much a matter of each state legislature's grace, where, you know, the, the federal constitution is going to look a heck of a lot different on the ground in blue states versus red states. We
0: are off to the races. And, and indeed, that that dynamic, that variance you're talking about, it'll be a whipsaw, right? Because you cross certain state lines and you, you go from being sort of shortchanged on one ideologically inflected set of rights to being okay there, but now you're shortchanged on the other ideologically inflected set of rights. Right, so, and, and, and it, it does-
1: of which sounds like rights. Right. Well, so, so it does two things, right? One is, right, one is it further entrenches the red state, blue state divide and further polarizes it. But the other piece of it is also just that um, it also increasingly devalues how hard, you know, or devalues might be the wrong word. It increasingly separates us into those of us who can travel to vindicate our rights and those of us who cannot. Well, it will also, I would imagine, at least depending on what comes
0: of it over time, this might accelerate geographic, uh, sorting for those who can move. You might get people who will move. And, uh, it's not hard to imagine a little bit of that on the ground that results in still further ideological sorting of the population.
1: And, and so I guess, and so I just, just to close the, to close the loop. So I would have thought given that you and I who don't see eye to eye on all these things, both see this as a potential consequence, right? Oh, I sure. would have thought a and, and, prediction, right? Yeah. And Chief Justice Roberts, right? Who's no fan of abortion rights, you know, spends his dissenting opinion talking about these consequences. And so I just, you know, I have a hard time as anyone who's listened to the strict scrutiny episode or who's followed my Twitter would would know I have a hard time you know with the sort of the majority um so being so blasé about this like I just I just that's I have frustrations well, which is I'm, nothing new
0: once exams are graded I will look forward to reading it all in detail and seeing if I Modulate my views.
1: Um, the, I'm uh, starting, uh, by the way, I'm, I'm starting Fed courts. The first day of my spring 2022 federal courts class is is the ruling.
0: Oh, <laughs> that's going to be a, a throw them in the deep end sort of experience, no doubt about uh-huh. it. Uh-huh. Um,
1: so, with the, with the question, why do we have federal courts? Question mark.
0: Uh, what are you going to do in your final
1: then? I have a feeling but, the issues will come up. Come back to I, well, right. First of all, between January and May, stuff's going to happen. Uh, second, I suspect that like, you know, that is a thread that we can sort of come back to as the semester goes on. Indeed.
0: Um, all right. So the, the vaunted Supreme Court Reform Commission has uh, produced its uh, sort of scholarly work mapping the options. Uh, so is the right way to think of this at the top level domain, Steve, that uh, the Biden administration had a bit of an issue on its hands with the pressure that was out there? classic solutions form a blue ribbon panel to look into it. And then everyone just admire the nice work product and then turn it into shelfware, put it on the shelf and let it sit there. And that's the end of the matter? Yes. There you go. Did you see anything in it that you thought like, you know what? I'd never heard that angle before. That's interesting at least. Or was was it just a nice compendium of the familiar set of options and pros and cons for those options.
1: It was a nice, it was a nice, if in some places, very one-sided summary of, of a bunch of debates. Um, But that, I mean, I think, but, but that, if I can say, I mean, again, this is not a Supreme Court podcast. So let me just like, really like what I find, I, I am not, I am neither surprised nor because I'm not surprised as disappointed as many of my political ilk that the commission did not recommend any of like the big, picture yeah. big ticket reform items. That was, like, not, that was not gonna happen. No, these 36 people were never going to suggest that we should add four C's to the Supreme Court. No, um, not without not without a very large dissent. Well indeed, which apparently there was some of anyway. Um, the the part that vexes me um is that there was lower hanging fruit that should not like like the sort of the notion that like there's literally nothing that the Supreme Court is currently doing, that the commission thought warranted a clear proposal for reform, right? Like, I mean, like, the you know, the, there's some stuff the Supreme Court does not do well, wholly apart from the part, you know, that doesn't have a partisan balance. Um, if I give you a magic wand,
0: you get one wish, but it's confined to relatively low-hanging fruit, nothing all that dramatic. Uh, what's a good example of something that, look, this would clearly be just sort of a good government measure? Do this.
1: So, I, I mean, the pro, it's hard to answer. The way you frame that question sort of puts me into a bit of a trap. The the the, <laughs> the one thing, I mean, my one sort of overarching reform is to sort is to encourage Congress to get back into the business of being part of this ongoing interbranch conversation mm-hmm. about the scope and shape of federal jurisdiction in general, but the Supreme Court's jurisdiction in particular. I mean, for the first 199 years of our history congress was a very active player in regulating the jurisdiction of the supreme court and shaping its docket and structuring its workload you know not in ways that raised constitutional hackles but in ways that we understood were appropriate for the body that controls the supreme court's jurisdiction um and since 1988 they've just abandoned it and i just the biggest thing that should have been low hanging fruit even to that diverse body of 36 people Should have been that like the separation of powers would benefit from congressional reinvestment in that conversation. There's uh so there's the
0: normative version of that question, which you know, we could debate do we really want them to get involved? What might they do? Um, but then there's the sort of descriptive question of is there anything that anyone other than the members themselves could do to incline? Is there a nudge available? I guess is what I'm getting at. Is there something uh that anybody could do that would create conditions that would make it more likely that on on the margin, members of Congress would
1: actually be interested in this. Yes. Um, there's There's one thing that one body can do. And? It is? The body is the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court can invite it. Yeah, well... This, it's not. You, I mean, it's not going to. But like, yeah, exactly. I
0: mean, then you have another version of the same question.
1: And why would they do that? They like. But, but it I mean, like, I mean, I. You know, we talk a lot about like the court as an institution, right? And like, you know, the chief justice issues a year-end report. We're going to get his 2021 year-end report two weeks from today. Um, and it seems like you know that might be something he could say. I mean, the you know, Bobby, I'm I'm, I'm working on my book, and I finished I finished the first chapter, which is basically about how. With the rise of certiorari, the Supreme Court came to assume control over its docket. And the central player, like, it's first of all, it's Congress that facilitates that shift in the 1920s. But the central player in pushing for those reforms and in achieving them was Chief Justice Taft. It's a different world now. Well, that's true. All right. So uh, let's
0: let's move down from the Supreme Court down and over to the 10th Circuit. Let's head over to Colorado. And Denver. And, and, and speaking of books, oh, yeah. the 200 plus pages of the two opinions of the 10th circuit in Mutarov, Jeffshed Mutarov's
1: case, um, which by the <laughs> way, I had totally forgotten it was even out there.
0: Well, I mean, the volume, this, you know, uh, uh, to, to quote the Hamilton version of Thomas Jefferson's too many damn pages for one man to read, <laughs> something like that. Oh, by the way, many uh, damn pages for one man to understand, understand that's it, uh, Alice and I went, my my youngest daughter and I went, uh, saw Hamilton here, Broadway in Austin, a couple nights ago. And it was the opening night, the return to in-person performances. Uh, and we had been at the last show at uh, the Bass Concert Hall as well. The, the uh, I think it was uh, uh, Lion King when we left, you know, right, right before the pandemic broke out. So it was kind of weird. It happened to be that we were there. It's the circle night. of life, Bobby. It, it, you know, how appropriate is that? <laughs> Um, and indeed, uh, who knows how many more of these shows we'll get. Although, you know, Omicron, whether Omicron leads to substantial shutdowns, I uh, actually think remains to be it seen. Won't in Texas. Well, that, that's a pretty safe bet. I did see a, a very hardening article uh, about data coming out of South Africa showing that the hospitalization rate for infected persons, I think it said was 1.9%, a dramatic drop off from Delta. So one way to look at this scenario is that uh, the incredible spread of Omicron outcompeting Delta in, in the virus environment, in 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 one, at one level, is is terrible because of the volume flooding hospitals where too many unvaccinated people are being exposed and still going to the hospital. But um, ultimately, the the displacement of the deadlier and more dangerous version of this disease was something that's at least for the vaccinated and those willing to get vaccinated, uh, a vastly less dangerous disease. So we'll see what happens. Um, but Mudorov, so we have this massive, I think the majority opinion is about 163 pages. It is. It does not lack for attempts to sort of tell the full story. I mean, it's written almost like a Law Review article before it ever gets to the marriage, telling you, hey, here's how 12333 works. Here's the here's the Katz decision. Here's the Keith decision. It is trying to present the 702 question uh, definitely in the round, in terms of covering
1: topics, so can we, can we back up a second? Because I, I, I'm not sure everyone remembers what Mudarov is about. So, sure, yeah, set the stage. So, so Mudarov, there was, I, I'm going to date myself, but Bobby, like, it was like 2013 or 2014. It, you know what? It was 2013 after the oral argument in the Supreme Court in what in the case that is now known as Clapper versus Amnesty International. Um, right, where the Supreme Court had made, where, where Don Varelli, at the time, the Solicitor General, had made a representation to the court about notice to criminal defendants that turned out to be incorrect. Um, DOJ turned around and started, uh, you know, better complying with <laughs> its statutory obligation. So um, let me unpack that one so people
0: kn- know the, the reference here. So the idea is, um, if you're a criminal defendant. Yeah, so you're being prosecuted and right. you have a right to be notified. How, how what's the right way to state this, Steve?
1: Is it the so, right to be notified when when FISA derived evidence is in, is when the government intends to introduce evidence against you that was derived from surveillance conducted pursuant to FISA? The government has at least a statutory obligation, and I have argued a constitutional obligation to disclose to the defendant the existence of, not the the substance of the evidence, but the existence of such evidence so that the defendant can pursue what's called a Frank's hearing under 50 U.S.C. section 1806F, basically so that the defendant has the opportunity to move to suppress that information on the ground that it was obtained either in violation of FISA or that the relevant provisions of FISA authorizing the surveillance were themselves unconstitutional. Exactly. And so, Mudarov,
0: who is one of two guys who were arrested at the airport in Chicago, trying to go abroad to join the Islamic Jihad Union, where they had sworn their bayat and all the rest to it. Um, So they were trying to go abroad to become members of this terrorist organization. They get arrested. And Mudarov, I believe, is the first person to get such a notification relating to 702. After the events that you described, just a right, I, I,
1: he was either first or second. I mean, there, so there were there were three or four cases in twenty thirteen, twenty fourteen, where this where where these now became the sort of the flashpoints for challenges to Section seven hundred two, which is the right. centerpiece of the FISA Amendments Act of two thousand eight. Basically, the sort of the programmatic surveillance provisions that Congress adopts in two thousand eight. This was now unlike Clapper, which is thrown out for lack of standing. This right. becomes. That, the sort of the vehicle for challenging 702 collection.
0: That's what makes those types of notifications so important because they mean then you have somebody with clear standing to raise the right. Fourth Amendment and FISA statutory compliance issues. Real so quick, the- mini mini primer on 702, real quick, to distinguish it from traditional FISA. Um, the idea here is you have a you have scenarios in which there are companies subject to American jurisdiction, so the Googles and at ts of the world, who who in various ways have communications infrastructure. And either because they provide platforms where you have account holders who may be non-U.S. persons outside the United States who are proper targets of foreign intelligence interest who are not Fourth Amendment right holders, et cetera, but they either have an account with you, like a, a Gmail address, or you're a you're a platform provider where their communications of yours as the non-U.S. person outside the United States transiting that American company's platform. Either way, it puts those companies in a very very useful position to, uh, if if the law lets them and they are willing, or if the law compels them if they're not willing, to assist uh, basically NSA in collecting on those non-U.S. targets. And so uh, this all goes back to some of the non-statutorily authorized activity that took place after 9-11. 702 is more or less best understood as the the codification of a version of that sort of activity that not only – allows the government to get, get cooperation from these American companies, but compels those companies to cooperate when the government shows up with their uh, approval they get from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court once a year based on a showing to the FISC that the procedures that the government's going to use when acting under 702 and compelling these companies to cooperate reason do a reasonably good enough job of ensuring that the targets really will be non-U.S. persons located outside the United States as to whom there is foreign intelligence interest. So in, like in, a, in a simplified, non-realistic world, this is all going to work fine because it you only somehow pick up non-U.S. communications. But of course, in the real world, those non-U.S. proper foreign targets who don't themselves have Fourth Amendment rights, nonetheless may be communicating with people in the United States who do. And there are various other ways in which there might be incidental collection. But the idea is Everyone agrees, including the government, that there will, in the pool of the, the lake of information that's gathered through proper 702 surveillance, in that pool will be some communications of U.S. rights holders, like Mudarov, who was in the United States. I, I don't know if he's a lawful permanent resident, but he was legally in the United States. It's not disputed. He had Fourth Amendment rights. And he's on the receiving end or is involved in a communication with a otherwise perfectly proper uh, 702 Target here's. Let me give a quick summary of the only public statement really that summarizes what then happens. So there's there's a classified account of exactly what was detected under this and how it then led to going in a targeted way after Muderov's complete communications at the next stage. And here's here's what the opinion says. In its brief, the government explained what occurred in broad strokes. Quote: In this case, the government acquired under Section 702 the communications of a non-U.S. person abroad. And in so doing, incidentally collected communications to which Mutarov was a party. So let's just stop there. They had a Mutarov's not the initial target. There's somebody outside the United States, a presumptively legitimate target. But it sounds like that person, they were exchanging emails or some kind of communication. And it draws the government's attention, of course, to Mutarov being a terrorism suspect himself, given that connection. Back to the quote. The government used some of these incidentally collected communications to support its application for traditional FISA orders. Okay, stop. Again, what happens next? There's 702 collection on foreign person. It leads them to discover Mutarov as a person of interest. Based on that, they make an application for an individualized uh, electronic surveillance order targeting Mutarov himself in the regular FISA process, and they get that order. Um, Back to the quote. The fruits of that traditional FISA collection were therefore partially derived from information collected under 702. Evidence obtained and or derived from that traditional FISA collection was in turn used at trial. So it's it's alleged to be by Mudarov a fruit of the poisonous tree scenario that depends on the claim that the underlying section 702 activity either was wholly unconstitutional or unconstitutional insofar as it enabled the the identification of him being a U.S. rights holder via, as an extension or an incidental collection aspect of what happened with the non-U.S. party. And so he, as, as I understand it, Steve, he basically raises all the possible uh, privacy-related claims, constitutional and statutory. And that's part of what explains the super long opinion because the majority rejects them one by one by one and then goes on to also have a very long and actually, disputed ruling on this entirely separate speedy trial issue in this case, which you know is interesting and important, but that's not the main event for us. Uh, does that sound about right? Yeah, I
1: mean, so the speedy trial issue is actually the gravamen of Judge Lucero's dissent. Um, and you know, I've I mean, I've actually written about the speedy trial issue in na in counterterrorism prosecutions in the Gailani case, especially. I thought that was what, perhaps the biggest one. Um, I- I don't think that's that super relevant to us. The two places where Lucero descends that I think, so the sort of in general, right, the court of appeals rejects Munirov's constitutional challenges to the collection under 702. Um, The two places where Judge Lucero descends on that, that I think are relevant to us and our listeners is first, Judge Lucero says that 702 collect, that that what the FISA court does isn't even an article three proceeding. He has a whole thing about sort of, why Section 702 directives um, are you know are not or cert- and certifications are not in his view um, Article Three proceedings which raise their own constitutional questions. Although it's not clear to me what the remedy is, even if he's right. Um, right. Right. I've written yeah. some detail about why I actually think that's wrong. Why I think that what the FISA court does is at least under current doctrine consistent with Article Three. Um, his other point, which I actually think is very serious. Um, is he does not disagree with the majority that incidental collection of U.S. person information under Section 702 um, is reasonable in this context and doesn't violate the Fourth Amendment. His concern is about querying. Yep. Um, and as on my understanding, and Bobby, correct me if I'm wrong, but on my understanding, the majority doesn't really hold anything about querying other than that they don't think it, they're not sure it happened in this case? Well, this is where the the partially classified,
0: the, yep. the substantial details are not in the public record. So I don't know what to make of this. It's not clear. So let me draw a distinction between two scenarios and it's not clear which of these this was. Um, it could be the case that the, let's assume NSA analysts, are let's call him John Doe. John Doe's in uh, Uzbekistan and he's a proper target and everyone agrees with that. He's been named, his selector's being used for 702 collection, and there's an analyst whose job is to read the results of that. And one of the things he sees is, aha, we've got this person, Mutarov, who seems clearly to be sort of uh, in some way cooperating or connected to him. And then you, you learn about Mutarov without anyone sort of phishing. Uh, not knowing what they were looking for. They're actually, it's very targeted. They're, they're focused on the proper target and they naturally see one of the things that you're there looking for, which is, are, do you have a Confederate in the United States? Uh, that's scenario one. And I think that's what everyone thinks of the propriety of that that's, that's much less controversial than scenario two. Scenario two would be a situation where there's, there's no such discovery of Mutarov in the first instance by the analysts who are looking at the proper 702 targets what there might be instead is maybe the FBI comes along after the fact and does querying of a more phishing variety, whether they've got a lead for him or whatever the search terms might be. And then it gets really interesting, both because we have intervening statutory developments, which were not on the books when these facts unfolded, but they're on the books now that specify exactly Congress's view of when it's okay for FBI to proceed and what kind of showing they've got to make, et cetera. Uh, But but it's more sensitive because you're not in the midst of doing the job you're supposed to be doing and incidentally and unavoidably seeing this really important lead. It's it's the going searching that makes it feel a little bit more like a fresh fourth amendment event has occurred. Although to say that does require you to accept that somehow it's okay to collect it in the first instance, and then it then there's a there's a second bite at the apple, if you will, from a Fourth Amendment perspective. There are a lot of people who feel like that's exactly how you should treat querying when it's fishing, uh, especially with U.S. persons. Anyways, we can't tell – I don't think we can tell from this which of those scenarios it is, so it's very hard to know. And it, and it actually looks like the majority and the dissent disagree in their characterization of what the underlying facts are. There's some – a little bit of murky back and forth involving a footnote. So I don't really know what to make of this.
1: Yeah, I, I don't either. I mean – the upshot is that I think it's possible. So Lucero says he would prefer that they remanded, so that you know to sort of develop a clearer record on this point. And I understand that point. I wonder if just the the existence of this dispute, Bobby, means that the te- the majority decision can't be cited for the as establishing the proposition that querying is permissible.
0: Yeah, I mean, it probably will be cited that way, but I think that there's enough murkiness here to where if somebody knows what they're doing, they can point out, actually, we don't, we don't know that we don't, if there was querying, we don't know what the circumstances were. There's a variety of scenarios with querying. Secondly, we don't know if it was querying. It might have been what I will call um, immediate discovery by the first line analyst who's not coming along after the fact fishing, but is, is sitting there examining the communications of the target and, and seeing direct evidence of a counterparty who needs to be investigated.
1: Yep. All right. Um, um, do, do you see this? I mean, I, I, I'm I'm sure Muderov will petition for yeah, further review. I think it's too mighty I, for I the
0: court to take it.
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, if I'm the clerk, I see 220 pages and I just, next. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, no,
0: yeah, I know. I think there's a bunch of reasons why we're not going to see this one go all the way. No, I think that'll be it. Um, well, okay. So we're running a little tight on time. Um, anything you want to make sure we talk about? before we get to our frivolity?
1: So we had just two, I mean, three quick things folks had asked us to talk about, and two of which I can hit very quickly, and one of which we might save for our next episode, because I think there's more to say. Save Um, for 2024.
0: Okay, got it.
1: Seriously. Um, So first, um, the House passed the Protecting Our Democracy Act, um, which I think is a relevant thing, um, there are a bunch of structural and institutional reforms in that bill, in that legislation that would improve, I think, transparency in the executive branch, that would improve interbranch relationships between Congress and the courts. Um, Bobby, as you know, you know Jack Goldsmith and Bob Bauer have been working together to really try to push for this legislation. Um, when Jack and Bob are on the same page about this kind of stuff, that ought to tell everybody something. Um, and, and
0: yet it... Yeah, and yet the Senate, I think, probably unlikely to take uh, yes. it up, don't you think? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, and so then the the sort of the but but I think it's you know, it's a good sign that the House passed it. It is a bad sign that it's dead on arrival in the Senate. I um it is and, and just really quickly just to make the point, it passed the House on a just about straight party line vote, which I think is an interesting reflection that even with a Democratic president, Democrats in the House willing to pass a bill reining in the powers of the president and Republicans weren't. Um, interesting reflection of the times we were in. It's, uh, it's
0: going to be worth continuing to watch this space, but I think this falls under the heading of a whole raft of things that many people thought were going to go flying through Congress right away uh, with the new administration and the new Congress. And this is really sort of the first actual major step along those lines. And it's not it's like happen.
1: voting. I mean, it's like voting rights, like, you know, stuff, stuff is getting through the House and dying because of the filibuster. Um, yeah, so,
0: I guess I guess your, I don't I don't know the details enough of where some of some of the uh, margin voters in the for the Democrats are, whether any of them might defect on this anyways, if it was a straight majority. Do you know?
1: I actually think there are a couple of Republicans like I, I, I think Romney and one or two other Republicans would probably vote in favor it? of this yeah. bill. Yeah. And so so I'm not sure you need all 50 Democrats I- except to blow up the filibuster, right? So we're back where we started.
0: Um, um you know, just will note real quick the National Defense Authorization Act for yes. 2022 did finally the train always leaves the station it left the station again. I have I've only done a few obviously there's many incredibly important things in it, but we usually scour it looking for sort of these sort of in the weeds tweaks to oversight law and to authorities. Um I, on my first pass, didn't see anything that struck me as of a piece with the level of major changes to, for example, sensitive cyber operations or sensitive military operations, uh, traditional military activities type things that have often been my interest in the past. I'm going to read it again much more carefully. I I usually wait until I see what goes on. I
1: I mean, I've been following it, Bobby, and my sense is that like the train has been stripped down to just the bare necessities in order for it to leave the station on top. So, necessity. you know, there was a much more aggressive series of military justice reforms that got watered down a fair amount on the way through the station. Um, the There were a couple of sort of status quo altering Guantanamo provisions that are no longer in the bill. The bill's yeah, very much. I assume it's just cookie cutter copy, copy and paste from past. There's one there, new, there's, I, I think I saw that there's one new provision Um, I want to get this right. It's not, I mean, it's not going to raise any hackles. There's one new provision, I think it's section 1036, that orders a report on medical care provided to detainees at Guantanamo. I mean, that's, you know, no one's going to lose any sleep over that. Um, But I think it's sections 1032 through 1035 continue the existing transfer restrictions basically as they were. Um, So, I mean, I think the story of the NDAA is, that part of why the trains leaving the station is because all the interesting stuff got taken out, including Bobby, the repeals of the two Iraq AUMFs that had passed the house. So,
0: yeah, yeah, that's definitely a, that's, so this could have been a much newsier thing for us. Of course, again, that's, this is our very specific national security legal frameworks review. There's endless important things in here uh, that are of a more garden variety, you might say.
1: so really quickly, we had also gotten a request to talk about the state of litigation over vaccine mandates. Um, oh, I'm yeah. I, really, saw, really... I saw is Judge that...
0: Easterbrook's uh, very uh, commendably short decision. Uh, did you see that? That seventh circuit decision about- About Indiana, Indiana University? University? Yeah, yeah.
1: Oh, that was basically, a while
0: ago. Yeah. It, oh, was that a while ago? Yes. Oh. Hmm. Um, just... Things have happened since then. Um, that, had, so... that had just popped up in my feed the other day. But see, This is what happens when Twitter forces me off- my assumption that I'm Unless looking was, at the latest. There, I
1: mean, there might be another Easterbrook vaccine decision, but if it's Indiana University, that was that was yeah. that's that's old news. Mm, um, darn you, Twitter! So, so there have been a bunch of litigation developments with different vaccine mandates, and I'm going to walk through them very quickly. Um, the one that perhaps has the most national attention, Bobby, is the OSHA one. Um, Just, I I can't resist because Karen would beat me up if I didn't point this out. The OSHA vaccine mandate is not actually a vaccine mandate. (laughs) Um, It is a vaccine or test mandate. Um, There's nothing in the OSHA rule that requires employers to require their employees to get vaccinated. It just requires non-vaccinated employees to regularly get tested. Um, But that's a separate matter. Anyway, um, that whole mess and the Dozens of challenges to the OSHA vaccine, vaccine or test rule um, went through what's called the multi-circuit lottery, um, the brainchild of our colleague Tom McGarity, and ended up in the Sixth Circuit. Um, The Sixth Circuit, um, I think it was yesterday or two days ago, denied the request to hear that case initially on banc by an eight-to-eight vote. So. Da- oh. Emotions are up, um, so it's going to a three-judge panel. Um, it's possible that three-judge panel will lift the stay that the Fifth Circuit had, in my view, prematurely uh, imposed on the rule. Um, so that's probably going to the Supreme Court eventually. Um, the CMS mandate for federal workers and for federal healthcare workers um, is already at the Supreme Court. There have been a pair, I think, a, either a pair or three different district court injunctions against the CMS mandate. The Biden administration is in the Supreme Court seeking stays of at least two of them. Um, so, shadow docket time uh, for everybody. Um, the Supreme Court also just earlier this week refused to block New York State's vaccine mandate for healthcare workers over a pretty feisty dissent from Justice Gorsuch that was joined by Justice, I want to say, Alito. Uh, Thomas also dissented, but didn't join the opinion. Um, There's also a Fifth Circuit decision this week refusing to block United Airlines' vaccine mandate over a dissent from Judge Ho. Um, So, you know, the short version is private and state vaccine mandates are generally surviving legal review at this current moment, and federal ones are not. but this is all very much in flux. Yeah, watch this space. We'll continue yes. to be uh, commenting on this. And then we also, I mean, it's, it, we're already over an hour and I, I don't want to go through this next one quickly. We do need to talk about the Baga's airstrike and the continuing fallout and the sort of the various things it says about U.S. strikes overseas. But I feel like we need we need to do yeah, that. Yeah, it deserves more than just sort of a drive-by treatment. So we'll, we'll,
0: Lord knows when we're back into this uh, in 2022. Uh, but we will try to cover that in the future. Um, so we're going to pivot now to some closing frivolity. You now on on Twitter, we we started talking about the uh, the various wonderful works of the amazing uh, children's book author Mo Willems, and uh, we thought we'd talk about that. So if you're not in that field, Wait, uh, so we,
1: before we do, do you have any holiday book recommendations for oh, our before, listeners? Before? You mean before we scare off the uh, non-parent listeners?
0: Yes, um, holiday book recommendations. Um, you know, I had previously recommended the Joe Abercrombie books for those who like uh, Game of Thrones style, hard fantasy, uh, sword and sorcery type stuff. Uh, I'll, I'll repeat that. Uh, some of y'all may remember I, I said I was going to undertake to reread all the Wheel of Time books. I'm, remind- I'm like halfway through that. And I'm so reminded of how desperately the whole thing needed to be so severely edited and, and ought to have been rewritten. Mm-hmm. I wish somebody would undertake some kind of, you know generous director's cut uh or opposite of director's cut i guess to trim that thing down uh, i have watched the first few episodes of, of amazon's treatment of it did not like the first episode it felt cheap and uninteresting but by the time i got to the fourth episode i thought they'd really hit their stride i can't wait to see how it goes from there um i know that the as i mentioned last time last month the, the last volume of the of the james sa Corey series that's more popular to some as the TV series The Expanse. The concluding novel is out. I can't and, wait. And
1: season six is out. It's, it's starting to drop too.
0: I can't wait to read the book. Um, I boy, can't wait to got... watch
1: season six. There you go. <laughs> what, have, what have you got to recommend? So I have two bo- I, I, I Because we haven't recorded in a while, I can't remember if I mentioned either of these books before. But the two books I've in, I mean I mean, I'm in the middle of reading three, but I don't think that many people are going to be interested in Linda Greenhouse's really good book about the last year on the Supreme Court who aren't already Supreme Court nerds. Um, the the two books I've been reading that are sort of perhaps of interest to a more general audience, um, the first is Andrew Roberts's The Last King of America. Have you seen this? Uh, this is the George III book. This is the rehabilitating George III book. This is the uncanceling George III book. This is the, George III is not the crazy, horrible person you think he is just from Hamilton.
0: I know him.
1: That can't be. (laughs) Is there a- He's about Adams. He's talking about Adams there. I know, but it was him singing. And that's where we got, and that's, so on Adams, I haven't, I I mean- Adam's own rehab series, of course. Well, so Lindsay Travinsky, I think uh, the news just came out yesterday that the super cool- um, historian of that period in American political history, Lindsay Trevinsky. Um Her next book is going to be about the Adams administration. Um, <laughs> Adam, the Adams administration. Welcome, everybody. W- welcome, folks, to the Adams
0: administration. Well, you know, it's been a while since uh, the double Adams moment of first McCulloch's book and then the the wonderful Paul Giamatti treatment um, in the series. Was that wonderful? I loved
1: You didn't enjoy that? So I thought, I mean, Paul Giamatti was amazing. I yeah. hate the miniseries. So, I have problems with the miniseries. I have some real problems with the miniseries. I love Um, it. So let let me just, we haven't planned this at all. Let me ask you, what is the single most important thing John Adams did while he was president?
0: Oh, well, I don't think there's any one thing, but so appointing John Marshall was a big deal.
1: Okay, so what the was first that, your, thing, was that your? the first thing you mentioned. I mean I, I, I would actually say that's the second most important well, yeah, thing. I, I wasn't going in order. There were there were things yeah, but, involving war with France that were important. Well so I, I was actually gonna say the most important thing he did was peacefully surrender power to Jefferson. Um right. yeah. Um, yeah. But you know John Mar, any list of John Adams' best accomplishments right during his administration would have to include putting John Marshall accidentally on the Supreme Court um, <laughs> John Marshall's appointment to the Supreme Court is not referenced in the miniseries. John Marshall is a character in one of the episodes, but only in his capacity as Secretary, Secretary of State. State, yeah yeah. Did, I can't remember. It's been a long time since I've seen it. Do they do
0: XYZ Affair? Is that uh Yes,
1: absolutely the XYZ affair is definitely that that's part of uh the the, the Adams Jefferson break. Um so um so The Last King of America is Andrew Roberts, also of Churchill and Napoleon biography yeah. fame. Yeah, yeah. Um and it is, I mean, it is a really it's dense. And if you don't like reading about British history, it's probably gonna, you know, not be the most exciting book you've read. It is a fascinating. Um, reconsideration of George III's legacy, and, and I've learned a lot from it. Well, so, uh, okay, that's good. You had a second book you were going to mention? Yes. So the second book, which is less historical um, and more currentist, is Empire of Pain um, about the Sacklers by my law school classmate, Patrick um who is a beautiful writer and um, and a fantastic investigative journalist and just uh, and a wonderful human being. Um, so, you know, I, Karen and I had watched the series on Hulu, Dope Sick, um, and, which is really hard to watch, but beautifully made. Michael Keaton is amazing in it. Um, and the, the Empire Pain is sort of the more comprehensive, like, you know, book version of. All right. How the of the Sacklers' role in the opioid crisis. the Sa- By the way, a role that is back in the news today. Right, the, uh, rule, the settlement got uh, thrown out? Yeah, Judge McMahon yesterday um, on appeal um throughout the bankruptcy court's effort to largely uh, allow the Sacklers to get off the hook. So Ooh-wee. interesting All right. times.
0: All right, but Mo Willems. We promised we par- some Mo Willems content. So, okay, first question, Steve. Claggle, uh, claggle, flabble. Do you prefer? Okay, first of all, do you, are you a Nuffle Bunny or a Knuffle Bunny person? I'm a Nuffle Bunny person. Yeah, I'm, I'm with somebody on this. Yeah, I'm with you. What about are you a Nuffle Bunny or a
1: Gerald and Piggy person? Uh, oh, Elephant and Piggy. Yeah. Um, yeah, Gerald is the elephant. Um, so there's more diversity to the Elephant and Piggy series. Nuffle Bunny, they're just three. Um, do you know that in Nuffle Bunny Free, when Trixie's reading on the plane, do you know what book she's reading? Oh, I'm sure she's got a pi- – is it Pigeon? It's or Elephant and it, Or, or is, is it Elephant and, piggy? Elephant and piggy. All right.
0: Um, uh, okay. pigeon, wait, pigeon,
1: wait. Makes a, pigeon makes a couple cameos in Nuffle Bunny 2. Uh, pigeon versus Elephant and Bunny. Pigeon. Oh, really?
0: Yes. Oh.
1: Hmm. Because Sydney is the pigeon. Like the pigeon you – know, oh. <laughs> the, the, the pigeon doesn't – the pigeon takes a bath, right? Like that's Sydney. Yeah, yeah. Okay, next question.
0: Are there too many elephant and piggy books? Yes. Next question. Is it nonetheless worth it for the emotional payoff when you get to the end of the series? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Most important question of all. Nuffle Bunny, Nuffle Bunny 2, or Nuffle Bunny Free?
1: I mean, they're such different books. Um, So Nuffle Bunny Free is like twice as long as Nuffle Bunny 2, which is like itself 25% longer than Nuffle Bunny. Um, I think Nuffle Bunny Free... Is the most interesting, but it has such a glaring plot hole. Okay, what is it? Lay it on me. How the hell is Trixie? How did Nuffle Bunny stay in the seat back pocket? First of all, how is Trixie flying home on the same plane she flew to the Netherlands on? Second, how is she in the exact same seat? And third, even if both those things are true, how did Nuffle Bunny stay in the seat back pocket while the plane goes to China and back? Okay, here are the answers. Uh, every time I
0: fly, I somehow magically am always in like whatever the last row is, crappiest seat back. Well, the that's because you. That's because so, you. That's because so like, like do you don't attend here. Work with me, so I always end up in the same terrible seat. So I'm not that surprised. Be uh, you know, just as the same pilots and uh, and uh, and attendants are working the same routes, presumably so too here with the plane. And then third, pre-COVID, so they weren't bothering to clean the plane much, and uh, you know who wants to stick their hand down into that that sleeve in the seat in front of them? So. Only a child, right? So she's the first child to be back in that seat. It's not been that long. There's your bunny. What are Johnny.
1: the what are the odds? Oh, I never tell me the odds. They're astronomical.
0: <laughs> Insert C3PO voice. Here. <laughs> uh, I I agree. So the odds of
1: surviving a direct assault on a Star Destroyer.
0: So every every uh parent who's in the read the kids books to their kids when you're it's it's been a tough day, it's the end of the day, and you're you're, you're simultaneously enjoying the the, the incredible experience of reading your kid, but also having trouble keeping your eyes open, um, appreciates it. There's a real variety, sometimes from the art, sometimes from the story, the things that have enough depth or interesting hook to them to kind of keep you as the adult more engaged. Um, all these books are really great on that dimension relative to competitors for the most part. But yes. I think as between the three I think uh, Nuffle Bunny Free has has the most interesting for the adults. I mean, just like watching the looks on the different adults' yes. faces as yes. the like on the plane when it's like, oh, thank God, and, and um, just like or when they like when they're trying to do the substitute uh, Robo Bunny, and but also you
1: know, there's right, the, a lot the, of the depth. The art is the, really the, got a lot. The of depth, funny yeah. one the funny oney, whatever it's called. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. The funny oney doll extreme, um, <laughs> but also the letter at the end of Nuffle Bunny Free, the letter from no. from Mo to Trixie.
0: Oof, that's a that's a tough one. That's
1: a tough one to read. It's such a dear jerker and so wonderful.
0: Um Yeah, I know
1: so, Listen, Mo Willems, I harbor no illusion that you listen to this podcast, but if you do, thank you.
0: Yeah, thank you. We love you. We're grateful. We for-
1: and 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 more importantly, our five daughters collectively all love you.
0: Boom. So true. And that's a great note to end on.
1: All right. Well listen, everyone who's listening at home, thank you for staying with us through our uh, periodicity problems. Um, thank you for making it through 2021. Um, I guess it is our goal to have more regular content in 2022. But let's like do it. everything.
0: Oh, some quick New Year's resolutions for the podcast: one, to be better than a monthly
1: show; certainly better than a quarterly one. Um, we got to get new swag out there. Maybe that'll yes. motivate us. And, and and if Omicron will let us, we have to do another live show sometime soon.
0: Oh, exactly. Where should we go to do that?
1: Suggestions mm-hmm. welcome. Um, well, if it's nothing about it free, we're going to the Netherlands. <laughs> oh, I, I could we could go to Amsterdam.
0: Our our, our large, hey, if you're a listener in Amsterdam, let us know. Uh, and with it's that, anywhere
1: anywhere in the Netherlands. Why why are you hating on the Hague? I dare no, say, I dare no, say, no, I dare say the odds are higher that we have listeners in the Hague than that we have listeners in Amsterdam. Hating on maybe a little a uh, little more than is fair,
0: but uh, I'm. shreveningen
1: for- is a is a Scheveningen is a lovely little beach area. Nice. Okay. We I gotta, can't pronounce it at we'll all. We'll do the grand tour then. And Schiphol is one of my favorite airports in the world.
0: All right. I'm in. Um, all right. Well, thanks for being there for us, y'all. We appreciate it. Yeah, you. seriously.
1: Happy holidays, guys. Stay safe out there. Adios. And Feliz Navidad. Feliz Año Nuevo.
0: Happy Hanukkah.